studying the book of Romans together. And we'll turn to Romans chapter uh, 11, verse 33. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand and and, uh, mark to the passage we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. Yeah, I've just decided to skip chapters 9, 10, and 11. Really, there's nothing in there worthwhile. And... uh, so we'll just go right to the end of it. It's interesting, a pastor that I really love and enjoy his ministry so much. I went to his website to see uh, what his teachings on Romans were, 9, uh, 10, and 11. He just skipped them. Uh, he taught chapters 1 through 8 and then went right to 12. I don't blame him uh, in many respects, but we won't do that. I want to go to the end of it. And this morning, I just want to lay a little bit of a foundation for those three, these three chapters so that we don't have to keep revisiting the same uh, subject as we go through it. We can lay the foundation for it uh, going into it. It might be if you're new to the Bible, it might be a little bit technical. I might uh, lose you just a little bit in this. I don't, I don't think so, but if I uh, do that, uh, just realize that it's a kind of a technical part of the Bible that we're in right now, and I refuse to be a mediator for God on that issue. I'm not going to protect you from His truth and uh, from the depth of it, so that's one of the great things about going straight through the Bible is that you hit everything, and then you're forced to teach everything, and so we'll do that as well. Verse 33. Oh, Paul writes, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray and ask that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit today and that you would give us a supernatural capacity to absorb and to learn the truths that are important to you and are thus important to us and that we so long to have be a part of our working knowledge of the Scripture and a part of our uh, working uh, personal relationship with you and our service to you. Bless us. Bless your word to our lives today, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In finishing our study of uh, Romans chapter 8 last time, we concluded uh, what is the first of the three major divisions of the book of uh, of Romans. And uh, before we enter into the second uh, major section of the book, which is chapters 9 through 11, I think it's important to uh, briefly uh, uh, overview, uh, restate an overview of the book in order to kind of, as I've said, lay a foundation for entering into and thus being able to understand what in the world Paul is talking about in in chapters 9 through 11. We remember that the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel, and that is the good news of God's provision of salvation. Uh, to us as sinful human beings, and that that salvation has been provided to us in the death and burial and resurrection uh, of Jesus uh, Christ, and that that salvation is received by faith by choosing as an act of my will to put my 
trust in him for that salvation. As Paul began the book in, in chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God uh, for, to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We also remember the, kind of the macro, the overview of the book itself in, in terms of its entirety. And, uh, and is easily encapsulated in five great words. A simple way uh, to view it is the first three chapters uh, have the theme of condemnation, where uh, Paul reveals every single one of us to be condemned in our sin and in need of salvation. And then chapters 4 and 5, the theme of justification. Chapters uh, 6 through 8 is sanctification. The chapters 9 through 11 is vindication, where Paul defends God's right to save Jew and Gentile alike exactly how he chooses. And then the application of all of this, and the word application encapsulating uh, chapters 16 through uh, uh, 12 through 16. When I read the book of, uh, of Romans, I always think of it on a personal level. And uh, to me, it's a description of a person's journey in, uh, from being unsaved to ultimately becoming a, a, a mature a Christian. And so the first three chapters of the book of Romans speak of uh, a man or woman, and here you have them in an unsaved and condemned condition. And then they get to chapters 4 and 5, they become aware of the gospel message and become saved. And then in chapters 6 through 8, they begin to grow as Christians. In chapters 9 through 11, uh, they grow deeper in their understanding of God and His ways and theology. And then in chapters 12 through 16, uh, they grow into maturity as a Christian in terms of their obedience to the Word of God, in terms of growing into their calling and a place of service in the body of Christ. In chapters 6 through 8, it deals with our sanctification as Christians and how we grow into a holy Christ-like life. And in chapter 6, you might remember that we're informed that God's plan of salvation not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins past, and not only provides us with the confidence of one day being in heaven uh, in the future, but it also provides us with the power to live a godly life now, a freedom from the power of sin, to be able to live a victorious Christian life. And then you go into chapter 7, as we've seen, and we're informed that God's plan of salvation not only provides us, the, chapter 7 gives us this record of what so often happens in a Christian's life upon hearing about this victorious Christian life, that it's available to us. And our first reaction so often is to roll up our sleeves and, and then attempt to accomplish our own sanctification by means of law or by means of human effort, and it always ends in disaster. It always ends in a spiritual crash and burn, complete failure and frustration, as Paul put it, a, a wretched Christian life. But then chapter 7 wonderfully gives way to chapter 8, in which uh, where Paul drives home the point that the single great key to the victorious Christian life is found in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit uh, within our lives. 
And in chapter 8, Paul has instructed us that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. He then went on in verse 2 that the law of the Spirit is at work in our lives. And then he went on to declare that the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now works in our lives to raise us up out of uh, the old life that was lived in bondage to sin and to the flesh. And then he went on to declare that we're not only uh, saved and forgiven of our sins, but that we've now been adopted into the family uh, of God. We now have a relationship with God in which we can call Him Abba Father. And for the first time in our life, it doesn't feel weird uh, to say that. He then went on to declare how it is that we're promised that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, and how that in a world that's full of fallenness and, and, and suffering, that when we don't know what we ought to pray as we ought, that the Holy Spirit then comes and, and He makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And then he went on to speak about how God works all things together for good in our lives as Christians, and that uh, our salvation is so secure in Jesus that God already sees us glorified. He already sees us uh, seated in that uh, heavenly scene. And then further, the fact that God is for us, and since He's for us, no one can be against us successfully. And then going further still, that no one can successfully bring a charge against us uh, that would result in our condemnation. And then finally, as he wrapped up chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I give you the review, uh, not as a means of just kind of filling uh, some portion of the sermon or for there to be kind of a vain repetition uh, related to all of us, though I know that for most of us we've uh, aware of all of these things because we've studied them together in the recent uh, months, but because it sets the table for uh, understanding uh, Romans chapters nine, 9 through 11. Now, in coming to chapters 9 through 11, there's a backstory here that is absolutely important to understand in order to understand the three chapters. Paul wrote this letter to a church that was located in Rome, and it was a church that was made up of both uh, Jewish believers and Christian believers, people that had become Christians from a Gentile background and also from a, a Jewish background. And Paul, because he was a Jew himself, he knew uh, how the first eight chapters of the book of Romans would have hit the Jewish reader of this letter as it's perhaps being read at a Sunday night service to the entire congregation there uh, in Rome. And as he's getting through those first eight chapters and both Jew and Gentile believers are listening to it, he puts himself in the, in the shoes of the Jewish believer who's listening to all that Paul has uh, his, his stated in the eight, eight, cha uh, eight chapters, and he realizes there's going to be significant questions that are going to arise in the mind of the Jewish Christian who is listening to, to all that Paul has written. Questions like, does the fact that God, uh, the, that we are God's chosen people not apply to us anymore? 
Questions like, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? If God is going to save Jews and Gentiles in exactly the same way. Questions like, why is it that there are so few Jewish Christians in comparison to the number of Gentiles who are Christians? Or is God through with the Jewish people as, uh, as a people and as a nation? And if God is through with the Jewish people, then what about all of those promises that He gave to the Jews and to the, to the nation and to them as a people in the Old Testament that are yet unfulfilled uh, even to this day uh, that God had made to them under the Old Covenant and under the Old, uh, Old Testament. And that question in itself wasn't just a question of the Jews. It would have been a question of the Gentile Christians who were listening to all of this. And, and because the, the Gentiles would have thought as well, if God did not keep His old covenant with the Jews, then how in the world could He be trusted to keep His promises associated with the new covenant and the New Testament based upon Christ and given to Jews and Gentiles alike? In other words, if God has cast away the Jews, then, and, and this is a habit of His, then maybe He will do the same thing uh, to us. How can we be confident in God's promises concerning the new covenant if He hasn't been faithful to the promises of the old covenant? And these are the kind of questions that were in the minds of, uh, of the Jewish believers in that, in that uh, congregation. And thus Paul proceeds to answer those questions in chapters 9 through 11. In chapter 9, Paul makes clear that God is absolutely free to save mankind however He chooses, to save Jews and Gentiles by exactly the same means, by exactly the same gospel. And that while the Jews uh, were and are His chosen people, chosen for many reasons, but chosen chiefly as the bloodline through which God would provide the world with a Savior, with Jesus, but a part of being the promised people or the chosen people, God never in that covenant promised that to save every single Jew. In chapter 10, Paul informs them and us that the Jews themselves were responsible for their own failure to recognize Jesus as their promised Messiah and for their own failure to trust in Him as their Savior. It had nothing to do with God being at fault, but it was their own doing. And then in chapter 11, Paul lets them know that while both the Jew and the Gentile must be saved always, must be saved in the same way through simple faith in Jesus Christ, that God was not yet through and is not yet through with the nation of Israel, that He has future plans for them as a nation and as a people, plans that, as we'll see when we get into that chapter, appear to have to do and uh, being fulfilled in that period the Bible refers to as the last days. Now, uh, it, admittedly, there's a great deal of, of mystery associated with chapters 9 through 11 uh, of the book of Romans, and I think especially uh, in chapter uh, 9. Uh, 
Uh, I think that these chapters are among the most difficult and challenging to understand in all of the Bible. Not because of what they teach, but how to rightly divide the truth that is found in each chapter and to rightly divide it and understand it in the light of uh, all of the revelation concerning these subjects found in the entirety uh, of, of the Bible. These chapters play an important part in our understanding as Christians of the place of both God's sovereign election or predestination or choice uh, of man in terms of, of, uh, uh, of salvation and also of human responsibility in terms of man's salvation. Now, the Bible clearly teaches God's predestination or His election in man's salvation, that when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, it is merely to then discover that we did so because God also chose us to be saved before the foundation of the earth. That is, before the creation was ever brought into uh, existence. For example, verses that speak to this in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I'll, I'll quote the references for those of you who take notes on this or for the sake of the tape. Paul wrote, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, that is, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. In chapter Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in Him, speaking of Jesus, we also have uh, obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Jesus uh, speaks to the very issue in John chapter 15, verse 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of my, the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Uh, in terms of the book of Acts and the early church, Paul and Barnabas uh, speaking in the city of Antioch declared, uh, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be uh, for, uh, be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And then Luke writes uh, in, in his commentary uh, concerning this, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the Word of God. And as many as had been appointed to everlasting life believed. Again in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I believe each and every one of those verses 
And I believe 100% in the election and the predestination of God and the sovereignty of God in our salvation because it is what the Lord teaches and what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches just as clearly human responsibility, man's free moral agency concerning our own salvation. That is, that man is free to choose or reject the gospel and the Savior and the salvation that God has provided uh, to mankind and is thus we are held responsible for the choice that we make with that salvation. Now let me, uh, allow me to read you passages that emphasize man's free will uh, to choose or to reject God's offer of salvation. And as a result now, responsible for the, the choice that we make. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If our will was not involved in our own salvation, if God's will was the only will involved in man's salvation, then the fact that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance would mean that He would save everyone. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, uh, of the truth. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible related to salvation, spoken by Jesus Himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone can, Jesus says, as an act of their will, choose to trust in Him and be saved. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus again in the Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, speaking to the church at Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And it's fascinating that even in the book of uh, Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 10, which emphasizes the free moral agency of mankind concerning his own salvation every bit as much as chapter 9 of Romans emphasizes God's election and predestination. And here Paul writes in chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 9 through 11, uh, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will, will not be put to shame. And on and on we could go, uh, quoting verses in this vein as well. And I believe each of those verses, I believe that as an act of their will, Every single person can choose to be saved by putting their trust in Jesus for that salvation. 
because it is what the Bible teaches as well. Now, all of this uh, then raises the question among Bible students and Christians. So which is it? Is a person saved based upon their choice to be saved, or are they saved because God sovereignly chose them to be saved before the world ever was? And the answer to that question is yes. Uh, Both of them are true related to our salvation. That then raises the next question, the harder question to answer, and that is how can those things, two things be true when they appear to be contradictory? As I mentioned when we studied Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, I firmly believe that God's choice of every Christian for salvation is born out of his foreknowledge, and that in his foreknowledge, knowing everything as he does, he knew uh, that I would one day choose him, and thus he chose me and predestined me uh, to be saved. And that's true of every single uh, Christian. And for me, this is the only explanation of uh, of, uh, this foreknowledge that does no violence to the two great truths of, of our salvation. Number one, that we as human beings have a free will and a responsibility to choose to be saved, a choice that God ultimately holds us responsible for. But then number two, the second great truth, that God has also predestined us to salvation. And I don't want to go back and and repeat what I spoke in in that particular study uh, a a number of weeks ago. I'll refer it to you, you to it, if if you weren't here to listen, if it's of of special interest to you. Now, uh, to, to be sure, there's plenty of mystery surrounding the subject of God's sovereignty in our salvation and man's free will concerning our salvation as they're taught in the Bible. So what do we do as a person or as a Christian in the light of this? I think what we do is that when you come to passages in the Bible that speak of God's sovereignty related to our salvation, then embrace that wonderful truth. And then when you come to passages in the Bible that speak of man's free will to choose or to refuse uh, God's offer of salvation, uh, then embrace that wonderful truth as well. It is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Again, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul sounds like a full-blown Uh, 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 God's election, God's sovereignty, full-blown Calvinist. But then you just read a little bit further and you go into chapter 10 and he sounds like a fully convinced Armenian as as he uh, uh, completely emphasizes virtually in that chapter uh, human responsibility. A couple of quotes have been helpful for me in in trying to get my mind around all of this through the years. I remember reading years ago a Warren Wearsby quote, and he said, a seminary professor once said to me, try to explain election, and you may lose your mind, but explain it away, and you'll lose your soul. And it is absolutely uh, true. 
trying to reconcile these two biblical truths can really, really make your head explode. Mine exploded this week once again, as it has so many times as I continue to try and be the first person in human history uh, to solve this great mystery for the body of, of Christ. But if I refuse to accept both of them uh, as equally true, then it can really, really put us on dangerous and unbiblical ground on what is the most important subject in life, and that is our salvation. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famous English uh, pastor and preacher, a Calvinist himself, uh, responded when asked if uh, he could reconcile these two truths together, and famously he replied, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And uh, that is very, very well uh, put. Though the, true, the two truths of God's sovereignty and human will in salvation, though they can seem completely contradictory to, uh, to us from our limited vantage point as human beings, from God's vantage point and from the vantage point of the Holy Spirit, they are not contradictory at all. They are completely complementary. It makes complete sense to uh, to God from His vantage point and perspective. And here I think it's helpful to think of all of this in the light of, of uh, what is known as the vanishing point. What is the vanishing point? It's probably best to explain it with an illustration rather than with a definition. If you were to go out onto the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, and some of you might remember, I certainly do as a young boy, uh, that is where they used to and still do to this day, uh, where they would take uh, vehicles out, cars out there, and, uh, and land speed records were, were and are regularly uh, set there. It's just this vast expanse of, of salt flat, and it is flat as far as you can look in absolutely uh, all directions, as far as the naked eye uh, can see. And have a friend go with you and supply him with a, a, a pole, let's say eight uh, feet in, in, uh, in height, and then attach a great uh, red flag to the, the top of, uh, uh, of that, that pole and send your friend now to begin to walk away from you uh, it, it, toward the horizon. And you let them walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and keep on walking uh, away from you. And they become smaller and smaller and smaller uh, with each step. And there will, become, uh, there will come a moment in time where one step you will still be able to see them and with the next step, they vanish. You can no longer see them uh, with the naked eye. And that is your vanishing point. When they take that step and they vanish from your sight. But though your eye can no longer see them, your friend is continuing to walk and continuing to walk and walk and walk for miles and miles and miles on that Bonneville salt flats beyond your ability to see. And what is true of the eye 
is also true of the mind. Take any subject you want to discuss with God concerning His nature, concerning His ways, concerning His thoughts, and take that subject out as far as your mind can take it, as far as your mind can understand it, and take it to your vanishing point. And as far as you can go out with whatever doctrine of God, as far as you can take your mind, that's your vanishing point. And then plant your pole there, complete with its red flag, and then realize that God's understanding of the same subject goes on infinitely beyond our vanishing point. And so it is concerning election and predestination and God's sovereignty and human responsibility concerning man's salvation. From the vantage point of heaven, there is these truths are uh, not contradictory, they are complementary, but we cannot yet understand how it can be so from our limited perspective and our limited understanding. And we will never be able to fully reconcile these things in our minds on this side of eternity. And as a result, we're to understand them as best we can of the light of the revelation that God gives us in His Word. And concerning this mystery that is involved in a relationship with God, for me personally, I have no problem with it at all because of necessity. Anytime you have the finite, that is us, in a relationship with the infinite, that is God, then you must get used to mystery because there's always going to be mystery for the simple reason that we can only understand His truth so far. And then beyond that, it becomes a mystery and faith to us, and wonderfully so. I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't expect it any other way because as the old saying goes, a God small enough to understand is not big enough to worship. And if I understood everything about Him, that would make Him smaller than my mind. And if He was smaller than my mind, He would be smaller than me. And if He's smaller than me, then He's not worthy of my worship. Now having said that, I also want to add well, the, that I do believe that each of these truths brings something important to the table concerning our salvation, even with our limited understanding uh, of them. I think that generally, the passages which emphasize human responsibility and free will concerning man's salvation that those passages should be directed toward the unsaved, while passages concerning God's sovereignty and His election and, and predestination and salvation should be supremely directed toward the saved. It is interesting to me and very, very instructive to me that when you, if you want to turn to the absolutely purest uh, environment of personal evangelism to be found in the entire Bible. You turn to John chapter 3, 
where Jesus shares the gospel with a religious man by the name of Nicodemus. And in that entire scene of John chapter 3 is Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus his need to be saved and with how to be saved. In that entire scene, in that entire passage which contains the most famous verse in the Bible on salvation, John 3.16, Jesus never makes a single mention of God's election or His sovereignty or His predestination. Instead, he entirely camps on Nicodemus's personal responsibility concerning his own salvation and his need to trust in Jesus for that salvation. And I think it's very wise to follow his example. But once a person becomes saved, in addition to facing all of the fallenness that we face in life, as we've seen, all of the persecution we face as Christians, all of the rejection, all of the spiritual warfare that we face as Christians. And God knows that as Christians, we need the strongest possible assurance of our salvation in the face of all of these oppositions. And so He lets us know by His election, His doctrine of election and predestination and the sovereignty of God, that our salvation is as sure as His Word. It is as sure as His ability to choose and His ability to keep. And the reason, you say, why the bother? Why would He bother with, with these doctrines? Why, why uh, would He bother with the doctrine of sovereignty and, and, and with election? God's election is intended to reassure us as Christians concerning the security of our salvation, that is so sure that the Bible speaks of our presence, as we've said, in heaven, in the past tense, as though it's already happened, as though God already sees their seed, uh, seated in the heavenlies. And that is a large part of what God's predestination and His election brings to our salvation. I have always appreciated as we talk about things that have helped me get my head around all of this as a, as a Christian and, and as a pastor. I've always appreciated the perspective provided by the old illustration of a great uh, wooden door that is closed before us that represents uh, 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 our salvation. And how it is that as you approach the closed door, Carved immediately above in the doorway are the words, whosoever will may come. And then once you enter in that door and you pass through the door into salvation, when you look back upon that same doorway behind you, carved above the door are the words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And here we see the proper emphasis of the two doctrines in, in, the, in the world and related to our lives, demonstrated, I think, wonderfully in the illustration. Again, is there mystery in all of this? Absolutely. But notice that even, again, the, the, the great Apostle Paul, after he spends three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, trying to make it as clear as possible, 
he closes the entire section as we read in verses 33 through 36. He closes the entire section with a doxology celebrating the mystery of all of it and how deep and unsearchable are God's ways. And perhaps some of you here today would like to look at this subject a little more deeply. Than, uh, than we can on a Sunday morning uh, sermon. Or uh, maybe uh, you, uh, 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 an attempt is being made to draw you into what is called Reformed theology or into five-point Calvinism, which I strongly believe is absolutely the wrong path upon which to come to a proper understanding of these things. And if, if you're being drawn in that direction, I, I want to recommend to you Norm Geisler's book called Chosen But Free. And the subtitle of it is A Balanced View of God's Sovereignty and Free Will. And we have copies of it in the bookstore for sale if it's of interest to you, and, and then copies available in our, our book lending library as well. Or to listen to Norm Geisler's uh, teaching uh, why am I am not a five-point Calvinist? He's sympathetic toward the Calvinistic uh, view to a degree, uh, but uh, what he has to say is very, very uh, important. And it's an hour-long teaching, and if you go to the church website, ccmodesto.com, or you just Google Calvary Chapel Modesto and link over to it, uh, you'll find a banner on our homepage for the next three weeks or so. You can click on it and have the option of streaming the message or, uh, or then uh, downloading it to listen to it uh, on, on the go. I don't think that's the place to find uh, uh, the answer. Uh, to properly uh, understanding these uh, truths. And as a pastor of this body, I'm not looking to poke anyone in the eye necessarily or to pick a fight uh, with, with anyone. But um, I, 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 don't, uh, I, I do think that's a dead end on, on the subject. So if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, uh, you'd say, what in the world does God have to say to me from uh, all of this? Peter wrote, and he said, God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is not, if God gets His will in your life, you will become saved, and you will become a Christian. That's His will and His desire for you. But He will not overrule your will in this decision. He will not force you to become a part of His family and enter into His salvation. That's something that you have to choose to do. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you have been created for. And as I say so often, without which, nothing in life will satisfy and nothing in life will make any sense at all ultimately. His, uh, his desire is to save you today. Let's stand together now. And what I'd like to do is rather than closing in prayer, I'd like to just uh, read Paul's closing prayer uh, once again related to this passage in verses 33 uh, through 36. Again, he declares, Oh, the depth of the riches 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given uh, to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him. Uh, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things uh, to whom be glory forever. Amen. If you need prayer for anything in your life today, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Sunday night, we'll continue our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the Gospel according to Mark, 6 o'clock this evening. Each of you are invited. Mike, would you close us up?